you love Jesus this morning, say amen. amen. Would you stand with me, please, once more today? We want to grab hold of our key verse of the Gospel of Mark. It is literally the key that unlocks the door to the understanding of everything that is in this tremendous gospel. This is the eyewitness account of Peter as told to his disciple, John Mark. And so we want to look today to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Find a screen. Read out loud with me, please. Here we go. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the unspeakable gift that you've given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that overwhelming understanding that we were held in bondage. We were held hostage by the enemy in sin, under the curse, under death. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you served. You laid down your life for us, became sin for us. You knew no sin, but you became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you for that amazing divine exchange. You took my place. You took my sin. Lord, you became the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. We, we praise you in this place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have free reign. I just acknowledge before you, Lord, and before everyone listening today that I cannot do anything apart from you. And I thank you, Jesus, that with you and only with you I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in this place. Blow the breath of God across a dead soul and regenerate a life. Lord, heal brokenness. Father, put together what has been wounded by the enemy. Thank you, Jesus, that the Son of God has come for this purpose, to destroy the works of the evil one, to obliterate, to nullify the work of Satan. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive and well in this place with the rest of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and Marion and West Memphis and around the rest of the world. We join our hearts together and we give you praise. We'll be careful to give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. We are doing this series expositionally, and that sounds like an unnecessary $10 word, but you hear the word expose, exposure, exposit. An expositional series deliberately goes through verse by verse for the purpose of grasping the context and allowing the otherwise unpopular scriptures to wrestle with us. We deliberately do not cherry pick. It's not a bread box promise lifestyle where we just basically pick out the ones that we really like. Somebody said one time that there are, there are far too many Christians today that they're, they're, they're Burger King Christians. It's kind of like hold the lettuce, hold the pickles, you know, special orders don't upset us. Or I guess that's not Burger King, but whatever it is, I don't know. Uh, a long time ago. Um, but he said it this way. He said, you know, there's too many home-on-the-range Christians. They want to go to a church where never is heard a discouraging word. And how many of you know sometimes we need to hear something that will adjust us and refine us and, uh, you know, grapple with our stuff? Because everybody in the room, whether you want to be the first one to admit it or not, has got some stuff. Everybody in here has got some stuff that hasn't quite yet been rectified and dealt with. And you're in process and you're not what you used to be, but thank God you're not what you're going to be yet but God's doing this amazing work in your life. 
My life verse has been Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Look at your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, he's not finished with you yet. He's not giving up. And this is not good grammar, but say it anyway. He ain't going to quit. I love it. I love it. Listen with me as I read from the context of Mark chapter 9. And this is an extensive passage because we want to wrap up 9 today. So I've got verses 30 through 50. So just find a, uh, a screen and you don't have to read out loud, but just follow along with me. Leaving there, they went through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know their whereabouts for he wanted to teach his disciples. Say those three words, teach his disciples. He told them the Son of Man is about to be betrayed to some people who want nothing to do with God. They will murder him. Three days after his murder, he will rise alive. Now look at their response. They didn't know what he was talking about, but were afraid to ask him about it. Verse 33. So they went to Capernaum. When he was safe at home, he asked them, What were you discussing on the road? The silence was deafening. They had been arguing with one another over who among them was greatest. He sat down and summoned the twelve. He asked them his question. So you really want first place. So you want first place. Then take the last place. Be the servant of all. This was his example. He, he, pardon me. <coughs> he put a child in the middle of the room. Then cradling the little one in his arms, he said, Whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me and far more than me, God who sent me. Jesus puts a baby there in the middle of the room. And this is in this moment in verse 38. John spoke up and he said, Teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons and we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. Jesus wasn't pleased. Don't stop him. No one can use my name to do something good and powerful and in the next breath cut me down. If he's not an enemy, he's an ally. Why, anyone by just giving you a cup of water in my name is on our side, count on it that God will notice. Look at your neighbor and say, God will notice. Verse 42, on the other hand, if you give one of these simple childlike believers a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of a lake with a millstone around your neck. Verse 43, if your hand or your foot gets in God's way, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owner of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. Everyone's going through a refining fire sooner or later, but you'll be well-preserved, protected from the eternal flames. Be preservatives yourselves. Preserve the peace. Lord, add your blessing today to your amazing, mighty word. And all of God's people said, Amen. Uh, I just want you to see this morning the importance of this concept of position in the upside down kingdom of God. This is a kingdom that Jesus comes talking to us about. And he says, It's one that you must give in order to receive, you must die in order to live. And the central concept that is in the middle of all of these verses, about 21, that we want to basically do a bird's eye fly over today quickly, is this concept of being a servant of all. This is the very ministry of Jesus himself, and he's teaching his disciples 
a lifestyle. This is my first point this morning. Discipleship is multiplication of a lifestyle. Say that with me, please, everyone. Discipleship is multiplication of a lifestyle. Discipleship is not a 12-week program where you fill in a few gaps or a few uh, blanks in uh, a study guide. Discipleship uh, is not necessarily uh, reading through the Bible in a year, though that's a great place to start in order to be able to grow in your walk with God. Discipleship is really the idea of coming alongside someone, especially this, this um, Hebrew concept. The best thing that I know how to be able to describe it to you in today's terms is the idea of a, of a journeyman and an apprentice. And there are two professions that we still do that in, and that is a plumber and an electrician in these trades uh, that are so very critical that people know their skills and how to be able to do things properly. You sit through a few classes, uh, but the real uh, understanding of that trade comes when you attach yourself to uh, a master uh, electrician or a master plumber, either one of those, and, and you follow along with them, watch what they do, uh, and then after a period of time when that teacher, when that master has enough confidence in you as an apprentice, at this point you're a journeyman, I guess, and you're, you're, journey, you're going on the journey with the master. Great illustration there in that. And so you're, you're in the process of actually doing life with the teacher. And so the teacher is standing there. He says, okay, you've watched me do this now 50 times. I want you to do it, and I'm going to watch. And so this is the beautiful example of discipleship because this is how Jesus did it and built it into 12 people that turned the world upside down. It wasn't great events. It wasn't uh, uh, amazing programs. It, it wasn't you know, spectacular world conferences or, or great big evangelistic outreaches or fish and chips days or any of that stuff. It was just the one-on-one -on -one alone time with the three, Pete, James, and John, or it was with the 12 in just little holy huddles and little groups where they would talk about life and they would walk into the marketplace with Jesus. They would experience the opposition that he would experience from the the fundamentalists of his day, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, uh, they would experience with him the power of the Lord that would surge because he had anointed them to be able to cast out devils and to lay hands on the sick, to see blind eyes open, to be, to be, to be privy to and to be a, a partner along with seeing the poor hear the gospel preached to them. So all of these areas of brokenness Jesus had equipped these disciples to do it, and they were in a journey with the master. A disciple is one who comes along. He's a student. Greek word is mathetes, very close to the word Matthew in the Bible. But it's this whole idea of, of yoking yourself up to someone, and you just do life with them for a period of time until that master cuts you loose and says, you know, now you go and do, and you take someone with you, and you begin to train and teach them. This is real biblical discipleship. Jesus did it. Jesus did it and the disciples watched. The disciples did it and Jesus watched. Finally, the disciples are released and the disciples did it. Okay, let's get that one more time. I'm going to step down here to this first step. Here we go. You guys here, go with me. Jesus did it. Say it this group. Okay, this group is Jesus did it and the disciples watched. Here we go. Jesus did it and the disciples watched. Here we go. You're the disciples did it. Here we go. The disciples did it and Jesus watched. And finally, you guys are, the disciples did it. Here we go. The disciples did it. All right, that's great. If I don't trip all over myself up here trying to do my little illustration. So you've got this idea of the disciple and the master teacher. Jesus is all about the business of multiplying a lifestyle. It's not just instilling a concept or a principle 
or a Greek word or a lot of stuff that's just mere knowledge, but it has something that has to be applied. It has to be applicable into the lives of these, these disciples so that it begins to work in them, that it brings a transformation. There, there are actually results that come from it. Everybody say results. All right, so we see this, and Jesus says he's pulled them away. He doesn't want anybody to know where they are because he wants to teach the disciples, and he starts talking to them. And in, from this point on, we're halfway through Mark, so you will start to see the focus of Jesus' conversation changing. Everything now from this point on is pointing to this central event of all of human history, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's going to get on a cross and die for the sins of the world. Now, I ask the question here, can you hear something over and over and over again and still not get it? Absolutely. This is going on with the disciples. And at this point, Peter remembers the last time he didn't like hearing this because he's pretty just swept up in the whole idea of being able to be alongside this one who is obviously the king of the world, this Jesus who is the king of the universe. The last time they were together in a big group, he had been patted on the back by Jesus when he said, you know what, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus started talking about going to the cross. Peter went from the top of the class to the dunce in the corner with the cap on when he rebuked Jesus and said, not so, Lord. And Jesus looked at him and called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you, you don't even know the things of God. You're an adversary to me. You don't understand the way I have to go. Jesus knew and was convinced of the direction that his destiny was going to take him, and that was a death, a bloody death on a cross at Calvary. Peter obviously had that still burnt fresh into his memory, so this time he didn't say anything. He kept his mouth shut, which is so unlike Peter. I'm so thankful that the stories of Peter are in the Bible because it makes me know that I have a chance. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've, I have gotten my mouth in motion more times than my mind has been in gear, and I have the history to recall it, and I'm thankful for God's grace. Anybody else in the room thankful for the grace of God? Because I've blown it, man. I'm thankful. Thankful for Jesus who covers and redeems and can restore and make up for my mess. These guys just hear it over and they don't get it. And if you really want to be critical of them and you think, man, you know, you, you wouldn't do the same thing. Well, just think about, if those of you who think that can't happen have not raised your babies up to be teenagers yet. Because they are a species that are gifted in hearing something over and over and they can't get it. Or can't get it done. Or can't follow through with it. And before we get too hard on our teenagers, do you realize that what God's taking you through and teaching you that lesson about them is how much how great His grace is with how many times He's told you to do something and you haven't gotten it? It's the, the, one of the most amazing lessons is when we are just overwhelmed at how much we love our children and in that moment we think you can't add enough commas and enough zeros to multiply and exponentially enlarge that to, to describe how much God loves you this morning. Put your hands together. Come on and give Him praise. They, they don't understand it, they don't know what's going on, and they're afraid to ask about it. It's not one of these moments of everything you want to know about the crucifixion and you were afraid to ask. Well, they, they, they're afraid to ask, that's for sure. And so they don't get the words out, and they're in this moment where Jesus is talking to them, but Jesus changes the subject. He grabs a hold of it like a good master leader does, and he says, boys, what were you talking about on the road back there when we were on the way in here, headed into Capernaum? And the scripture here that we read said the silence was deafening because they knew they'd been had. 
How many of you know anytime God asks, asks a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer? When God asks a question of anybody in the Bible, it's because he's trying to, trying to bring the answer to bear in the life of the person who's going to have to man up and give the answer. So the, the silence is deafening. They're, they're, they're being very quiet all of a sudden. They're not so talkative. And finally somebody speaks up and they basically said, Jesus, we were talking about who is greatest among us. And so Jesus immediately grabs hold of the opportunity. He said, so you really want first place? You, you, you think you want first place? If you want first place in this upside-down kingdom, then this is the answer to it here. It, it is your position in relation to me. It's your position in relation to everyone else. And if you want first place, then you just need to go ahead and put yourself in last place. If you're going to be great, then you want to be servant of all. And it's Jesus himself who gives us his example the Apostle Paul is the one who writes about it. It's, it's referred to as the kenosis passage, Greek word kenosis, which literally means to empty, to pour out. Jesus came and he emptied himself. He poured out of himself all of his divine, godlike attributes and he came and became a man. He took upon himself the form of a servant, literally bowing the knee and humbling himself. And we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Jesus' own example where the Apostle Paul gives us seven steps down into humiliation where he literally becomes obedient unto death. He thought his position with God not something that he had to grasp or to grapple with, to prove. And so he just literally lays it all down. But the story doesn't end there because... God begins a seven-step process of lifting Jesus back up because He humbled Himself, God exalted Him. And this is a kingdom principle. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and in due season He will lift you up. God, God resists the proud, but He accepts the humble. And if we will humble ourselves... Bow before Him, take a knee, take the position of the servant, wrap ourselves in the servant's towel, be willing to wash the feet of others. Jesus said that we will be lifted up. And this obviously is tantamount in His life and ministry because He is elevated to the highest place in all the universe to the point where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord and its seven steps to exaltation. In Jesus' own example, He humbles Himself and then God the Father exalts Him. If I'm going to take a position in the kingdom of God, it's not going to be because I step on another believer's head. It's not going to be because we use our position in this life as a stepping stone. I've seen over the years, I, I, I asked God before we stepped out into full-time ministry, I said, Lord, wherever you send me, I want to give my life in that place. I don't want to do the typical furniture moving around kind of thing that so many pastors do. Get a little disgruntled in one place. I don't know if you know this, but did you know that the average tenure of the typical Southern Baptist pastor is between 16 and 18 months? Notice I didn't say years. The typical average Southern SBC pastor is 16 to 18 months. That's a, that's a figure statistically that has been published in their own journal. And a lot of that has to do just with the, the congregationally driven system and somebody beats the war drums and before you know it the pulpit committee's headed out to look for somebody else and this one's been let go. And you just don't find a lot of times where there is a, a, a long 
a tenure where relationships are built and established and you begin to learn how to do life together and you have an opportunity to get offended and see if you're going to do what the Bible says in terms of how you're able to deal with it and work through it. Come on, somebody. Let me just tell you, if, you, if you've come to Victory and you think this is the perfect place, please just go ahead and leave now because if, first of all, if it were perfect, you would make it imperfect by coming and joining yourself. If it were a perfect church, I would not be the pastor. It is not a perfect church. It is the perfect place for imperfect people. And I'm borrowing that. I think that's the, the high, point, uh, high Point Church, another great church in our area. It, it's actually their slogan. But that's a great, I believe, a great slogan for any real local church that's about grace-based atmosphere, where, we're, where, where it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the one that we all must point to. He's the one that we all must look to. He is the master. We are all the apprentices. We are all the journeymen. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Jesus, literally his own example, and he's talking to all of these people. And, and I started to say something, and I'm, I want to go ahead and finish my thought. I have seen this literally be a parade over here where people would come and they'd get put plugged in and last two or three years and then something would happen. There'd be a blow up and then that pastor would be fired and somebody else would come in. And, and, and let me just say this. I have certainly not done what I have done over the years without making mistakes. And I'm thankful for the grace of God in your hearts and your lives that have prayed for me and helped me grow. I probably wouldn't still be here if I didn't have that. So that's a testimony to the grace of God in your lives. I'm thankful for that. But next January, we will celebrate our 25th year here. And that's what I asked God. I said, I want to lay my life down in one place. I don't want to jump around. And I've seen the parade of pastors come through town. And every time I pray and I say, God, send some men who truly have a heart for this city, who have a heart for the Delta. And they're not just here to use this as a stepping stone to a bigger salary and a better pulpit and nicer facilities and a bigger church. And the way... Men of God can think just like anybody else. Because you know what? Those disciples are, are not unordinary. They are ordinary guys that deal with the same stuff that you and I deal with. There's some competition that is sin-driven down on the inside of all of us of trying to do better than or be over than somebody else. And Jesus said, you want to strike a blow to that, deliberately come to the back of the line. Slow your speed down and let the person cut you off. And don't flip them off when they do, but bless them in the name of Jesus. Okay? It, it, slow down. Get, let somebody else get in front of you. To let somebody else take the place. Get underneath them and serve them. Jesus evidently has got some family of the disciples that are around here because there's a baby available. And he grabs a little child, sets them down in the middle of the room with these 12 that he's teaching. And he says, guys, look at the example of this baby. If you guys can embrace this little one right here who is so dependent in his life for everything that he gets, you, 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 you must realize that nothing will deliver you from selfishness or from your own personal desires and just me, myself, and I taking care of my own wants any quicker than when God gives me the gift of a baby to take care of. How you doing down there, Pastor Jeremy? Yeah, got a new little baby. Sadie is just beautiful. Amazing gift from God, isn't she? Have you given up some sleep? All the time. All the time. You hear that? They're a blessing. They're, they're such a precious treasure from God. But there are moments when you don't feel like those words that I just said. I remember the painful nudge, yay, the punch into my ribs. 
during Drew's growing up time and Abby's when she's in the crib and my wife was such an amazing trooper and six weeks off and then she's right back at teaching school and we've got this little rug rat that's, you know, and he's feed me, clothe me, take care of me, give me a clean diaper. I remember Dawn going, it's your turn. And I would go, oh, no, no, I just, no, no it's your turn. And, then, and, and, and let me just say this to you right now. I was a pretty good dad, but I wasn't nearly as good a dad as she was a mom. She was the super mom, and she's not even in the room, so I'm not getting any points from this. I'm just telling the truth. Sometimes when the dads don't follow through, and you're in a two-income family, and it takes both of you to work, mom usually is the one who ends up taking up the slack. And thank God, come on, let's put our hands together for our moms, for our wives. Now, guys, if you make it work, you're not without sacrifice. I got up, my feet hit the floor plenty of times. Uh, I remember here a few years ago, Ab, uh, Drew's gone, Abby's almost, and Dawn said, don't you want to have another baby? I said, yeah, I want to have some grandbabies in a few years. <laughs> I am too old. I have to sleep all night long. Uh, I just can't even think about That's why you have babies in your 20s and 30s. Because when you get to your 40s and 50s where I am right now, you just don't know. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let them grandbabies come. Send them home when we're done with them. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. But nothing is as an amazing of an opportunity to get rid of your selfishness when God gives you the gift of another life to take care of. They're looking at you for every, the next bite of food that he or she has, the clothes the, the warm house, all of those things. Jesus says, look, if you can embrace this and all that that means, you will learn what it means to get in the last place. There are times. Let me just say this. My budget reflected it when the babies started coming. I had all these interests and you know, wanted to spend money on music and new keyboards and all this kind of stuff, but then a baby comes along. I, I remember telling Dawn, I said, if we can ever get Abby out of these diapers, we can get a new car. That's a car payment. All those huggies and loves and all that other stuff that you got. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you have to have an SUV and a trailer to pull all the stuff that comes with that little gift from God when they get dropped down into your life. The stuff. All the stuff you got to have. You know, you got to have that little thing that swings it or make her go to sleep or the new thing that kind of does this, you know, kind of whatever. You know, you've seen those new cradles that kind of do the... I want to go, can you make that in an adult size? I, I, I could use one of those. <laughs> We're going to have a good time in here. In the middle of this, here comes a disciple who just sort of out of the blue, stream of consciousness, asked this kind of an off-the-wall question. Jesus is trying to talk to these guys about laying down our lives and following in His example, becoming a disciple, multiplying His lifestyle into them, being a servant of all. And then here comes, believe it or not, John. John, John, great guy. John the beloved. He says, Teacher, we saw a man using your name to expel demons and we stopped him because he wasn't in our group. And we've got these brand protecting disciples. I mean, it's like, it's like the rednecks that argue about Ford and Chevy. And the Chevy guys are all saying, Okay, it's okay. I'm, I'm good, everybody. I, let, let me tell you, my argument's just different. I'm just the geek that's arguing that Apple's better than PC. And it took 20 years. My wife has been a Mac evangelist for years. Going, Michael, I'm telling you, honey, you can stop all those little upgrades. If you'll just completely get saved and get you a new operating system, and it's called, it's called Apple. She told me for years. 
Now, you know, it's just some of you guys, that's just, just a geek and they don't have anything else better to do. And I've always thought the same thing about these guys that sit around and argue about Ford and Chevy. And Chevy goes, well, you know what? F-O-R-D, found on road dead. <laughs> and the Ford guy comes back and he says, yeah, well, only little boys wear those Chevy bow ties. Ford's for men. You know, it's the same old argument. We've got the disciples that are pulling this brand protection. We, nobody else can use the name of Jesus. We stopped them, Lord. Because we want to protect this Jesus name. We, we, we got a good thing going with Jesus Christ Evangelistic Ministries Incorporated. It's a good thing. We want to protect it. And Jesus wasn't pleased. He stopped them. And he said, we do not need that sectarian spirit operating among us. Don't let it be in Victory Church. Jesus wasn't pleased. He said, don't stop him. No one can use my name to do something good and powerful. And in the next breath, cut me down. If he's not an enemy, he's an ally. Why? Anyone by just giving you a cup of water and my name is on our side, count on it that God will notice. Let me just say this to you. Over the years, I have labored to build bridges between Protestant and Catholic and between Baptist and Pentecostal and Presbyterian and Methodist and the different groups in our community and have sat down with different ones reaching across the table in places of leadership in our West Memphis Marian Ministerial Fellowship the association here for a number of years and, and, and have served on every one of those capacities as the, the secretary, as the treasurer, as the vice president, as the president. And I have not been as uh, regularly involved the last couple of years just because of the, the busyness that I've had. And I just want to tell you how much God is moving in this city because there was a time when people of one group, and I won't mention the group, would not even participate if people of another named group were there because they felt like their theology was not right. And they, if I show up and I'm at the same meeting with them, that and I literally heard a pastor say this, and I won't mention his name. He's still pastors in this town. He said, if I show up there at that meeting, then that will, will indicate that I agree with them. I said, come on, you can't be serious that you really think that. And I, it was, I, went, I confronted him one day face to face, and I said, brother, I love you love of Jesus on the inside of you. What you're really telling me here is, is that God saved you. There's another condition on your salvation. It is your theology has to be just exactly right for God to save you. And he said, oh, no, no, I don't mean that. I said, okay, so why are you feeling this way toward this unnamed group over here? You can't do that. God didn't save anybody in this room because we started out with everything completely figured out. Anybody in the room who thinks they have all the right answers... You've already set yourself up for an offense because nobody has a corner on it. And I need my brothers in the Baptist church. I need my brothers and sisters in the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church and in and, and, and the church of Christ. I want to tell you, and I, and I want you to hear me, I really want to invite you and for you to come participate Monday the 25th of November to the West Memphis Marian Ministerial Fellowship Thanksgiving, community Thanksgiving uh, service because this is amazing. God is moving. First of all, that's being hosted where it is. And secondly, that they've asked the crazy man like me to preach it. I'm going to be preaching the West Memphis Marian Fellowship, Ministerial Fellowship, Community Thanksgiving Service at Missouri Street Church of Christ, November the 25th. Now, guys, I don't know if you realize how big this is. When you can get Southern Baptist and Church of Christ together in the same room, and one thinking that, Okay, our being here doesn't mean that I agree with you. And they've let a Baptocostal preach it. 
Are you hearing me? Now, I'm just, I'm thankful and I'm humbled and I'm honored that, that God has over the years let us begin to see some bridges be built because I believe we're in a position in, in the city now in Marion and West Memphis where we really can do some kingdom work. Because whether or not you understand what I'm about to say, the number of things on which we agree vastly outnumber the few things on which we disagree. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Come on. Jesus says we have no room for those sectarian spirits, those things that are divisive. Get it out. Come on, guys. If they're not for you, I mean, if they're not against you, they're for you is what he's saying. Now look at this, and I want to wrap this up quickly. God is very protective of His spiritual babies. He said, if you do something deliberately or intentionally to hurt one of these little young disciples in training, He said, you would be better off thrown into a lake with a millstone around your neck. God is not playing. We are thankful. The last three, four years, we've regularly, Sunday by Sunday, we've seen new people make a fresh start and come to Christ experience a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've got a lot of young in the faith, little ones, and they're growing in, in, into spiritual adolescence and maturing into spiritual adulthood. It's exciting to see that. We want to be careful and we want to honor and we want to love, not make fun of, not ever put us in a, ourselves in a personal place of being in judgment because a young one is slipping in one way or another. We want to come alongside them, get underneath them, lift them up, strengthen them, encourage them. Somebody say amen. amen. God says if you don't, you'd be better off in a lake with a millstone around your neck. Last section here. Are you getting anything out of this? All right, look. It's a hard section. Jesus says, you know what, guys? you got some stuff in you that's just walking around that I think you need to cut out, you need to deal with. He says, if your hand or your foot gets in God's way, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owner of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. If your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed alive than exercising your 20-20 vision from inside the fire of hell. I call this point here radical synectomy. Those of you that get a little bit older and you've probably been to the doctor and you've heard the doctor use Something with the word ectomy or the, the suffix ectomy in it. Ectomy literally means the surgical removal of something. You're cutting out. When, he, when the doctor uses the word ectomy and you attach it to the appendix, an appendectomy means they're surgically cutting out your appendix. A hysterectomy is when they surgically remove the uterus of a female. And there, there's a whole list of different kinds of ectomies that we won't take the time to go into. But what Jesus is talking about here is that we need a radical synectomy. Radical means we're, he's cutting it all out. Okay? Now, the thing that you want to do when you approach this passage of Scripture is not be a hyper-fundamentalist. Hyper-fundamentalists always insist on a complete wooden literalism. And there are times in the Bible where Jesus regularly employs the Hebrew teaching concept of hyperbole where he exaggerates for a reason. Matter of fact... The, the writer of the Gospel of John said it this way. He said, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to hold all the books. Well, do you realize there's a little bit of hyperbole there? There's a little bit of exaggeration, okay? Jesus did a whole lot of stuff, but the world's pretty big. And all the books, really? He's really saying, look, there's so much more here than what we're actually saying. And we can understand that, but not have to take it in a wooden, literal kind of sense. I don't believe that this means that we should walk around absent one hand or one eye plucked out of its socket or one foot literally cut off. Let me ask you the question because this is the issue here. 
Is the issue really the fact that if I lose that hand, that that really deals with what was motivating that hand to do what it was doing in the first place? No, because the real issue is it goes down into my heart. It reaches its roots. We are what, what the Reformers call totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean utterly in every way, but it means through and through, radically, down to the roots of our beings, we are depraved by sin. And we need a radical synectomy. Now, cutting off my hand, if it's stealing, is not going to stop me from taking things. There's still ways that I can hide something in my coat. I can use an elbow to do it. Are we really advocating that we come down to the point where we're just a bunch of stumps rolling around? I, I bet you I can still steal, 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 stump it as a tuppy. I can still steal something as a stump with no harm, arms or legs or feet or anything like that. Now, certainly when you get to the issue of the eye, we, read it, we readily connect this whole idea of lust. We were sitting in Bible school in a Tuesday night roundtable discussion, and a couple were driving from Kinston, North Carolina for our roundtable discussion in North Carolina back in the early 80s. And we literally came across this passage of Scripture, and we were wrestling with it, and Lovely couple, uh, wife is obviously driving because the husband had a childhood disease that left him completely blind. And so we're talking about how this whole eye that offends you and things that that would relate to in terms of the eye offending you and things that our eyes are looking at and, and lust and pornography as men and, and issues that many times that we even as Christian men grapple with. And maybe even if you're not into the whole pornography thing, most all you men in here know you don't even need any pornography. Your imagination is strong enough. I had one man brave enough to say amen. <laughs> it's quiet in here. It's like in Mark early on, the silence was deafening. How many of you men know what I'm talking about? Say amen. You don't even need pornography. Your own imagination is strong enough. And we're talking about this issue of lust and what offends the eye and should we pluck the eye out? And he says, well, if you pluck one out, what's the other one going to do? And you know what? He said, I, don't, I can't see out of both of my eyes. And if you think that that eliminates the issue of lust in my heart, then you've missed the whole point. Because lust doesn't just, this is the gate that it certainly can come through. But lust resides in the heart of a man. And you can pluck an eye and you can cut off a hand and you can lose a foot and still be wrestling and grappling with the very root of the thing that is tearing up your life. Come on, somebody, are you hearing this? I, I remember the awful news report that came when I was about 21, 22 years old and in college, and I, I was leading what had just was kind of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the campus of Arkansas State University, and we were getting people saved, and uh, man, the, the college and career group was just exploding. We had over 100, and, and, and people getting on fire for God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, getting saved, and witnessing on campus is just an amazing thing that's going on. And, and, and I think about the, the report that I heard that happened in Texas from a really hyper-fundamentalist church, from a 16-year-old boy who was found almost bled to death. He'd cut his hand off and he had plucked his eye out because the average teenage boy wrestles with this whole thing of lust and, and what he's looking at. And, and he, he loved Jesus and he didn't want to go to hell and he's reading this passage literally from such a, a wooden literalism and he doesn't have anybody that can talk to him about real life issues that young men face and somebody that would love him. I guarantee he had a pastor in the pulpit that was haranguing and beating him every Sunday telling him he was going to bust hell wide open and yet not taking time and discipling those young men in that church. 
And he took a passage so literally that he cut his hand off and he plucked his eye out because he was like any 16-year-old is. He's trying to learn how to govern all of these new things that are happening in his body and in his life. Is this too plain to talk about this morning? Come on. I, I, I believe that so much of the time that, that we approach the Word in such a hyper-literalist sense, and if somebody could sit down with that young man, he could still have a hand and still have an eye in his socket today. I don't know if he's even still alive, but that was on the news. I remember hearing it when I was like 21, 22 years old. And it made us as young men in our Bible study look at this thing and go, okay, what does that mean? What does that passage mean? It means God wants to radically remove from me the thing that my hand is doing, the, the place where my foot is taking me, the thing that my eye is looking at, so that this hand and this foot and this eye, this does, this walks, the walk that I'm on, the things that I'm looking at and paying attention to are things that are godly. Come on, somebody. Can I have an amen this morning? Put your hands together. Last thing, last thing today. Bible says in verses 49 and 50, everyone's going through a refining fire sooner or later, but you'll be well preserved, protected from the eternal flames. Be preservatives yourselves. Preserve the peace. Salt and fire. Every one of us in our lives, some of you this morning are in a place, my grandfather used to talk about between a rock and a hard place, or out of the frying pan and into the fire. That may be descriptive of some of the stuff that maybe somebody in this room is going through right now. If you're a believer, you know Jesus, and you're going, God, what is going on? What are you trying to teach me in the middle of this? Please, Lord, help me learn. I don't want to go around this frying pan again. I want to grab hold of whatever you have for me. God refines us. God salts us with fire. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit says that He will bring along with Him a baptism of fire. And it's the dealing of God. It's not the judgment. Because there is a refining fire that purifies us. And there is an eternal flame that punishes. And we're talking about two different things. But notice Jesus says, you're going to experience some fire sooner or later. Either you on this side of it embrace it and let God deal with your life and let Him salt you with fire. Let Him, like a metallurgist who looks into a furnace of gold and he continues to stir and the, the impurities rise to the top and he takes a skimmer and pulls it off the top and the finding pot of silver. When a metallurgist can look into that finding pot of silver and see his or her perfect reflection, then they know that it's reached a state of complete purity. I believe that's what God is after in my life and yours, is to walk us through on this journey with Him, to teach us how to deal with the things that are temptations to us, that we struggle with, that are just a part of the everyday, ordinary human experience. It's not all about a lust issue. Lust is not always about sex. Sometimes lust is about power. It's about trying to rise to the top and to be the greatest it's ignoring those that are less or that are weaker or that are smaller or younger. It's realizing that in my maturity, sometimes the refining fire is deliberately taking the posture of humility, getting up under the, underneath someone else who is struggling and to encourage them and to lift them up, to wrap ourselves in the servant's towel. And this morning, I just want to say this to you because there are Believers mostly in the room, and maybe today you're a guest and you're just here sort of to check it out, and, and, and you've sensed something in your heart of the Spirit of God dealing and moving and working. And let me just say to you today, that's a precious thing to, to know that God is reaching into your life and into your heart. 
bringing change because He loves you. He's calling you His son and His daughter. And as everyone in the room now bows your head, closes your eyes, I don't want anybody looking around. 